Yes, we are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It's called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toladano. John Wall doesn't need no introduction. It's an insider's look at the NBA and culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick of the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall, will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to podcasts. There's a new way to bet on things outside of sports with Kalshi. Maybe you thought uh, on the future of TikTok. Will Congress ban it? Or won't they? Will Taylor Swift's album win album of the year? Will Biden's approval rating go up? Will it go down? Or inflation? You can trade futures on all of that and make money if you're correct. You're smart. You know things. Bet on it. $20 bonus if you go to Kalshi.com slash stereo. Spelled K-A-L-S-H-I and deposit $50. Kalshi.com slash stereo. Get in the game. There is no guarantee of performance. An investor could lose their entire investment. Investment fees. iHeartMedia does not recommend any investments. See further disclosures at Kalshi.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. All right, I am Rappaport Stereo Podcast, coming live and direct. All right, I'm going to tell you something about today's episode. Today's episode is with Alec Baldwin, iconic actor. And I have to let you know we recorded this episode on January 9th. It's a fantastic episode. We did not discuss the tragedy, uh, what took place on that film set with the cinematographer and the director being accidentally shot. It's a tragedy. Anybody who's been on a film set, television set knows that something like that is just a terrible, terrible mistake. I do not support, do not like the politicalization of the situation. My sentiments, my thoughts, my prayers go with the woman, Helena Hutchinson, the DP, who was accidentally shot and passed away along with the director who also was shot and everybody who was there because I'm sure everybody has been traumatized by the event and people's lives have been changed forever. It's easy to politicize, scrutinize somebody like Alec Baldwin who's had a boombastic off-screen persona, but I'm sure he is just mortified and has so much sorrow about what happened. That being said, we did not discuss that. I didn't feel like it was appropriate. This is a fantastic episode about acting, about his career, about my career, about different actors, Al Pacino, Kate Blanchett, Robert De Niro, with 
Alec Baldwin. And once again, my thoughts, my prayers, my sentiments go out to Miss Hutchinson and her family. And I'm wishing um, them nothing but the best going forward and trying to uh, deal with their life that will never be the same. Enjoy this episode of the I Am Rappaport Stereo Podcast. Very excited about this podcast. Got notes and everything with highlighted information. I Am Rappaport Stereo Podcast with a man that needs no introduction, who I've been a fan of, New Yorker from Long Island. Been in everything. I was going through all the films, and it's been decades. Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, Working Girl, Miami Blues with the great Jennifer Jason Lee. Love that film. Beetlejuice, The Hunt for Red Octobers, The Royal Tenenbaums, Departed, Blue Jasmine, which is one of my favorites, 30 Rock, philanthropist, classical music lover, father of 17 or 18 children. The excellent, curious, the curious Alec Baldwin is with me on the I Am Rappaport My Stereo pleasure. Podcast. My pleasure. My pleasure. Did you see? Now, I, haven't, I haven't been doing these things, you know what I mean? But I see you online. I see your, uh, your Instagram. And I'm always like, you, you can hear me laughing in the other room. Because there's very few people who tell it as straight as you do. You know, online is a great, why are you online? I know why I'm online. And some people say to me, why am I online? But when I see you online, sometimes I'm like, through the good, the bad, the Trump, the pandemic, even this week, and every time, every time you get online, it's like controversy, questioning. Why are you even on social media? Well, I think that number one, we found, and maybe we found it, maybe my wife figured this out, probably, we found that on accident, is that you wind up um, thwarting paparazzi press when you're putting out a whole bin of your own images of your kids and yourself. The more you mm. post online certain stuff, the less the value there is to their pictures of you. Right. So they don't, unless they got my wife pregnant walking down the street, you know, which is often. But um, And for me, I find Instagram uh, can be fun in terms of, and I don't mean to, to do these rambles where I like, I would talk about a topic, which I like doing that because it's you unedited. Yes. Like I've, I've done pieces where the most cogent things I said, as you well know, get cut out. Yes. And, uh, I, I get frustrated with that. So I kind of stopped doing that for now, but I would do these rambles, we called them, and I would speak to people in the audience about a topic. But most of it's like, uh, just think, I think it's funny with my kids and so forth. And it's like a PR thing that you control. I agree. That you control. You know, like during elections, pandemics, you would get on there and like you get into stuff and like, you're a great speaker. You have a lot to say. You're an iconic actor. So I would be fascinated watching you do your stuff because it's like, I look at it as performance art. You know, like I look at- I think at if you can make it funny. I mean, there's people who obviously- who are the biggest stars in the world who, I mean, think of some movie stars who have nothing to do with social media. Very few left. Yeah, like Leo and people like, you know, they, they, they don't bother. He'll post something to promote some environmental thing. He's doing penguins. He only posts about penguins right. and grizzly bears. <laughs> That's, That's it. That's fine. But we know you're, Leonardo, we know you're on there. Yeah, well, we love Leo. But, but the, well, the, of course. The, but the thing is, is that 
once you say uh, you don't want to do, you know, Hanks will do little things every now and then, and who's more of a movie star than Hanks? But the uh, it depends on what you do. I used to want to pontificate. Yes. And I didn't think it was pontificating, but other people would. Oh, it's pontificating. It's great pontificating. I would pontificate. Yeah, okay. But I, I kind of slow down on all that now. I really could. But the problem is, is what forum do you communicate with an audience through? You do TV interviews, and they cut them. Mm-hmm. You do an interview with someone, and they shape it and talk about you a certain way. Mm-hmm. I think I've always said this in the past. I had one guy, when I was making a movie in New Orleans, I had one guy from the Times-Picayune down there who actually was my favorite interview because he wrote exactly what I said in the paper. Uh-huh. And he really had the spirit of what I was trying to say. And everybody else, it's the new journalism where they're going, well, what he really meant was, right. what he seemed like was, and there's a element of psychoanalyzing that they're not qualified to do. I agree. I agree. Your history with the paparazzi and being followed and the marriages and the divorces and your stuff with the paparazzi is unique. And it's been for decades. It's been for decades. Right. I mean, you this since the 90s. Yeah, I met my ex-wife in 1990. Yeah. So you've been dealing with it on a different level. Like but it's I not will just say what I think is important is, and again, this doesn't excuse anything. I'm not saying this as an excuse. I think there's a profound difference between an excuse and an explanation. And the explanation is that you, n- nothing was ever unprovoked. If a guy was 75 feet away from me with a long lens and he wanted to take my picture, I didn't care. But if he walked up and he almost chipped my wife's teeth with the lens of the camera, my favorite one, and I don't mean favorite in, in terms of I enjoyed this, but what I, the most absurd one was this huge guy. He had to be like 6'4", probably weighed about 250. He's backing up from me with the camera, and he's taking my pictures. I'm walking in the direction, and he's walking backwards. And he slips and falls and sits on a baby in a stroller and lands on the baby. He trips and lands on my neighbor's child uh, and sits on the baby. Uh, and I thought to myself, this is like, you know, this is really not right. And all of the altercations I've had with people like that, it's always been provoked where they, some guy walks up and goes, you know, you know what are you doing with this woman? My wife. Right. I mean, she's a whore. You know, they'll say horrible things to bait you. Right. Because that guy doesn't want the confrontation. What he, what he wants is for the third guy across the street to film the confrontation. Right. It's like three-card Monty guys. <laughs> it's three-card Monty. It's do the you, journalistic you, equivalent of three-card Monty. Do you find now that, and I think it's good that the paparazzi, they're a little bit leery of you, which I think is good. They should be. You've I don't early. think they care because I'm so old now. They don't, I just they don't c- think that they care. I really do think that, like, like right. I don't know how you feel, and I don't say this with any, I'm not celebrating this at all, but it's like, you'll see people now. I mean, I'm old enough now, and they'll say, oh, I went and saw this movie with so-and-so, and I'm thinking, I have no idea who that is. I don't know who anybody is anymore. I mean, I'm going to be 65 in April. And I don't know who anybody is. The anymore. younger actors. Well, we get older. Yeah. And we have a different perspective. Different. It's like Long Island. I have this house on Long Island. And we've been out there forever. And when I first went out there, people would say, the old timers that I met would say, oh, it's changed. And I'd go home and think, I think it's pretty great. You know, I just, just gotten out there. Now I've been out there for 40 years and it's changed. Right. You know, your perspective changes when you get older. Now, you have on two watches. Is this a, a I got to add, what, what is this a child's this is a watch? cardiac. This That's is a, my EKG cardiac thing from my doctor. Yeah. So, so is it Rolex? Of, 
No, this is a Breitling that my wife got me that I love. It's my favorite, uh, the Super Ocean, which a lot of Breitling fans. I, I have a lot of watches, as I'm sure you do. I, I don't. I This is the only, I'm not a watch. You know when I stopped wearing watches? When I had my first kid. Because when I was holding them, it always gets stuck on them, and then I stopped. Yeah, I have a lot of watches, and I have some just stunning watches. But this I wear, because it's an EKG program, right. and you do that. It Bluetooths to your phone, and you send it to your doctor, because I've been doing a lot of cardiac testing now that I'm going to be 65. Got to do it. Got to do it. Now, let me just say this. There's a couple of things, besides just your acting, and I said this to you the one time I spoke to you on the phone— I've always loved that you're such a fan, a fan of actors, you're a fan of classical music, and you're you're not a shy fan. You like to fan out on other actors, you like to talk about your experience with other actors that you right. love, that you admire, and you've done it openly, which is something that I really appreciate, respond to. I remember at one point you were, I don't know if you still are, but you were, I would think was on Letterman. You had been high on vegetarian, vegan, and all this. Are you like you were talking about like this was like something you were like passionate about? Uh -huh. And I think you were went on Letterman or the Tonight Show or some show, and you were just like, I was like, what the fuck is he doing? He's just talking about eating and food and veg. Are you still vegetarian? Like, what? Well, what is I don't. Yeah, I, I eat fish, and even that I got sick of during the pandemic. Like my tastes, I didn't have COVID. At least I don't think I did. I didn't have any positive tests, and I lost my appetite for. A couple of things. One is chocolate. Like I always like chocolate. Well, I don't mean I don't I like hate it, but it's too. like I'm not a chocolate person. Anymore. I'm a chocolate person. I used to like chocolate, and uh, I don't have a taste for it. Or any I, like really sweet things make me kind of gag. You know, I mean, I'm trying to get my blood sugar down always all the time. But I find I don't know what you're like, but I find that with my podcast, I do it because of my curiosity, and you know, we try to have. Famous people, musicians, actors, what have you, people in the arts, writers, but we also try to have people where there's some issue. Like, where I'm going to interview a guy tomorrow who just has a book out and he was the principal obituary writer for the Wall Street Journal. And we want to talk to him. We always have a, an array of people where the topic is what's interesting to me. And, um, but I don't know what you're like, but, you know, I never want to talk about, like, if I go to a film festival, this is the best example. And they say, we want you to come and be an honoree at a film festival. What film of yours do you want us to show? And I'll, mm. go, and I'll say, oh, God, I don't want you to show any of my movies. I want you to show Red River with John Wayne. I mean, I don't, don't, let's show him a great film and we'll talk about it. But I don't really like to draw attention to myself in terms of acting and my work. Mm -hmm. Because I really believe that... Um, I've never once had a satisfying experience making a movie in my whole life. Never. Really? Never. Never. In terms of the work, meaning it's like when you, you're honored to, <clears throat> Scorsese says, come and do The Departed, come and do The Aviator. Those are small roles, and you're honored to be there. You're so appreciative of all the people you're working with when I did Glengarry and things like that. But in terms of my own satisfaction, only sometimes in the theater... Did I feel? Because you can have more time, you know, you rehearse, obviously, and make. But in films, I can't name one film I've ever done that I was fond of. During or the results? Either. No, no, during was the memories are of the people. The memories of the, of the time. The, I never the, sit there and say, oh, we shot that scene and watch how I say this line. I just don't even bother with that. But I'll sit there and go, you know, I'll never forget talking to Jack Lemon or talking to... 
George C. Scott mm-hmm. or someone I really deeply admired. Driving in the van and hearing I, those things. A movie will come on and I'll see a scene and I'll go, I remember that day. That's when I had a flat tire on the Ventura freeway and I was late to work and out, you know, whatever it was. But I never look at films of mine and go, watch this. You know what I mean? Like I'm, but do I'm you, digging it. I mean, it's probably changed throughout the years, but when you're working on a set and you're doing a scene in, in a good movie or a good show, are you struggling to satisfy yourself? Like, are you able to sort of self-direct and self-monitor? Like, I've gotten to the point where, and I think some of it is because when I've done television, directors come in and out where you go, that was good to myself. Like, because I can't defer to a stranger. You know, I can't defer to somebody. Say, you know, like, when you're, as a young actor, you're like, was that good? Was that good? But are, do you struggle in between takes? Do you, like, when you say nothing's ever been satisfying, you don't go home and go, I did what I attempted, my goals well, for this. I think about is what I should have done. Really? I go home and I go, I always, I do what I call rear view mirror acting. I look at myself in the rear view mirror and I'll go, listen to me, Bob. You know, I'll say the line. Right. And I go, oh, that's how I should have said the line. But like you were saying, we all have had to become self-directing. There's more jobs out there. There's more square mileage now in the business then there are good directors. Yes. And so when you go in, we've all had to develop that self-directing muscle. When you go on the set and you're with a great director like Marty or somebody like that, you just stand there and you know he's got it worked out. He's got it worked out. He knows what he wants to see. He knows the rhythm of it. Say that line faster, come in quicker, do this, do that. You welcome that. But with a lot of other people now, you go in and I mean, at my age, you're there saying, I've made more movies than everybody on this set. I've, uh, I know more about acting than everybody on this mm-hmm. set, unless I'm with somebody who's one of the greats. Mm-hmm. You know? And I just, you have to become self-directing. It's tough. Do you? And I'd rather be directed. And what to you makes a great director? You've worked with Woody Allen, who I worked with, who is director-less almost. And it's almost actor-proof. I've never worked with Scorsese. I who's pray- a director you loved? Woody. Spike Lee, Tony Scott for different reasons, Nora Ephron for different reasons. But I've never, all those directors that I worked with, it wasn't the direction. It was the confidence they gave you or the belief they gave you, even with Woody Allen, where you do one or two takes and you, you go, well, at first it was like, what, what the fuck? You know, like, you know, I've been practicing this for six months. Like, right. you know, but then you know, well, he knows he's got it. Even though you want to keep going because you're having such a good time. Yeah. Like Nora Ephron, I would ask her questions. She'd go, I don't know, but let's figure it out later. Tony Scott, similar thing. Spike Lee and- What did you shoot with Tony? Tony Scott, True Romance. And I was really young. I mean, I was 24 and impressed. You know, I was like, you know, and on the sets, Christopher Walken and Val Kilmer and Christian Slater. And I'm like, what the- Big people. You know, but he made me feel like- you know, I'm trying to actor shit like this. He go, that's good. That's not good. But keep asking me questions. And that made me feel like, all right. But, you know, when people ask me non-actors, like, what is a director? I've never had like a magic sauce or somebody sort of wave a magic wand and you're like, oh, that's it. Like, so for you, what is a good director? Well, I mean, one thing that comes to mind that there, in reference to what you said that I thought was interesting was I had a director once say to me, and I'll never forget this, and it was not in the beginning of my career, it was later in my career. And he said to me, we were do a couple more takes. And I said, uh, maybe we're like at four or five takes. And he goes, I think, goes, I think we got it. 
And I know that everybody's in a hurry time-wise. They want to move on, and if they got it. And I go, uh, can we do one or two more takes? He goes, yeah. He goes, but I, I just want you to keep in mind. He goes, sometimes you knock the guy out in the first round. Sometimes you knock him out in the 10th round. He goes, what does it matter? You knocked him out. That's all that matters. You probably would rather knock him out in the first or the second round and get it, you know what I mean? He said, you know, sometimes we get it early. Right. And sometimes we don't. And I'll tell you. And I trusted him once he said that. I trusted that he was observing things in a way that I could appreciate. And uh, for me, a good director is somebody who they make you see the movie like a symphony. A symphony has its highs and lows, its adagios and its pizzicatos and what have you. And I want someone who they're going to tell me, what am I in their movie? Like uh -huh. an ingredient in a salad. I don't need to come in here and jerk off and make myself look powerful and, and clever and all these other things. What am I in your movie? And tell me the, and one of the things I do now and have for the last several years, I'll say, tell me the story of the movie. Tell me about your movie like it's a story. And you'd be surprised how many directors can't do that. It's a good question. But then there's ones who will tell it to me. Well, this is a story about a guy or a woman or whatever. And I only want to come in and give you what you need in the movie and resist that temptation to want to pull focus and do too much, you know? I am Rappaport Podcast. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the Draft. King's YouTube channel is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and culture surrounding the league. John Wall, baby, needs no introduction. Every week, the five-time NBA All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA and what's going on now in the league. CJ will bring his A-list comedian buddies to keep it light and fire off some hoop takes. Plus, John Wall will be inviting current and former NBA players, friends, and teammates to join the show to give their unfiltered accounts of what's really going on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to podcasts. There's a new way to bet on things outside of sports with Kalshi. Maybe you thought uh, on the future of TikTok, will Congress ban it? Or won't they? Will Taylor Swift's album win album of the year? Will Biden's approval rating go up? Will it go down or inflation? You can trade futures on all of that and make money if you're correct. You're smart. You know things. Bet on it. $20 bonus if you go to Kalshi.com slash stereo. Spelled K-A-L-S-H-I and deposit $50. Kalshi.com slash stereo. Get in the game. There is no guarantee of performance. An investor could lose their entire investment. Investment fees. iHeartMedia does not recommend any investments. See further disclosures at Kalshi.com. This is Colin Coward from The Herd with Colin Cowherd. Angie's list is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. They're here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big, small, indoor, outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled pros to get the job done well. Listen, I've got a couple of things in a bathroom in my house. 
Gotta get it fixed. I don't have time, and I'm not good at it. Angie is. With just a few taps on the app, you can have Angie tackle your home service project start to finish. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it easy to research, compare, and hire pros to ensure a job done well. With 29 years of experience combined with new digital tools to simplify the process, Angie makes completing home projects really easy. It's your one-stop shop. Angie can help you find the best price for your project by comparing quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. They get the difficulties that can come with home projects. They get it. Why not make it as simple as possible? Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com or download the app today. You've worked with Woody Allen a couple of times throughout the years, smaller parts. Do you enjoy when he would give you only your scenes in the script? Well, I didn't, you know, listen, when you work with Woody, you're working with somebody who we were in Italy for the opening of To Rome With Love with Jesse Eisenberg and Greta Gerwig and uh, Elliot Page. We were there and I, the press... The Italian press really only wanted to talk to Woody. So all of us were on a dais, and they'd say, okay, you. And the reporter would go, Woody, I have a question for the Woody. And they'd ask Woody. So well, finally, they asked us a question. What does this mean to you, you know, to work with Woody? And I had worked with him in this movie, Alice, yes. with uh, Mia years ago. And I said, you know, the thing about Woody is, is that as a star, as a comedic performer, as a movie star as a writer, producer, what have you, I said, the thing that you got to remember is that first and foremost, Woody is a writer. And at the corner of my eye, at the end of the tip, you saw Woody nod. Like, that's the thing I think he takes the greatest pride in, is that he writes these movies, these movies which are, like, I'm not joking when I say, if I'm really depressed, like if I can't get out of bed, and uh, which those days are not often with seven children, but if I'm really down, then I really don't feel like the world is what I'd like it to be. I watch Broadway Danny Rose and I feel great. I'm on my feet. You know what I mean? I mean, like the, the brilliance of that writing and the way he timed that movie. And with him... It's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, it's like with him... Uh, that film particularly is ridiculous. It's really great. I love that. It's so goddamn good cinematically, the writing, the blocking... The cinematography, the editing, the way he sets up the shots. It's, I was just talking about it. I watched it maybe six I months watch, ago. I watch that movie all the time. Fawning over it. I watch that movie all the time. Who's the cheese eater? May God forgive me. Bonnie Dunn. Then they cut back to the guys at the cafe. Bonnie Dunn. You remember, he was the stuttering ventriloquist. So, Danny. I mean, that whole sequence... I mean, I'm just crying laughing. And the mobsters and the mobsters' faces and like, you know, making it's one of the first films where they made mobsters funny. Yeah. You know, it came with a time where like, you know, like he's like sort of comedic mobster. Are you an Aries, Johnny? Are you an Aries? He says to him up on the balcony. Yeah. I mean, the, but but the thing is is that it's like, what's something that can or movies that you can go back to that really just resonate for you? I mean, I, I love old movies. When Bob Osborne was alive, he had me come down and do a lot of this guest programming with him on Turner Classic Movies. All right. I tell you, it was one of the greatest times of my life. I love Bob. He was the loveliest guy in this business. 
He invited me to come down there and do three rounds of that. Eventually, the producers were like, get him out of here. You know, we know enough of him. But I came down and did it with Bob three times. And we did the wraparounds for the essentials. And, you know, they'd send me the discs and they'd say, you know, watch these movies. And some of them I didn't have to, like half of them or more I didn't have to because I'd seen them already. And then I watched some that I didn't, had never seen before. And uh, I think people have forgotten movies that can actually reach inside of you, you know what I mean, and really affect you. I agree. I think that more and more movies now are as just escape, you know. And I think movies in general are, it's a really sad, you know. I was watching Tootsie this weekend. You know, and I'm like, this is not even close to being ever made ever again. Like, why would this ever be, you know, it's never going to be made again. It'd be some weird, obscure, tiny movie that yeah. maybe would make it to Sundance and do well at Sundance. Right. And this was a big... It probably wouldn't get made. It wouldn't get made. It'd have it'd to be, be appropriation. Some, oh, all of it. Yeah. The whole thing. But just the kind of movie and the way it was shot. I know you're a fan of um, Scorsese. And it's funny because you mentioned the TNT classic movies. That was almost like a podcast before podcast. And that's right. one of the things where I was like... And this is, you know, in the 90s when you're a star, but you're talking about films, which I, I really love that and I respect yeah. that. I know you're a Scorsese fan. Oh, yeah. I know you were a fan before you started uh, working as an actor. Yes. What was your departed experience, your aviator experience? What is it like being on set with Martin Scorsese as a director? And how do you separate fan and now we're working together? Well, I did a lot of, uh, even though it wasn't uh, necessarily applicable to the to the shooting, I did a lot of uh, research for the aviator because Juan Tripp, uh, president and the, I guess the founder of uh, Pan Am, um, his family lived in East Hampton. His daughter, Betsy, who was married to this guy, her name was Betsy DeVecchi. Friends of mine knew her. She was older. And um, I got connected with her and I went and I sat and had lunch with her and talked to her for a very long time about her dad. And she described what he was like. And, uh, and, she, and she said to me at one point, you know, very, very elegant woman. And she said, she goes, well, I see where your uh, my dad is going to say that uh, horrible word because I say fuck at one point, and she goes, I see he's going to say that horrible word. Huh. She goes, Dad would never say that word. He would never say that word. So I called up Marty and I go, I don't know what to say, but she said that he probably wouldn't say that word. And there's a long pause, and Marty goes, I need you to say fuck. It's like, but you and what? I, and I love that. Like, here's the clarity. Here's what I want you to do. This is my movie. And then when we did Aviator, that's cool. We shot the scenes very we did the one scene in the restaurant, but the stuff where I'm out the door and I'm kind of taunting Leo, we shot those very quickly because it was a whole day of Leo. Remember the milk, remember the milk, remember the milk, you know, Leo naked. Yeah. In the other room with the bottles of piss everywhere. Yeah. And they wanted to get this as efficiently as possible, and I understood that, to move on to number one on the call sheet and get Leo cracking up inside that room. So we did that. And then on The Departed, I just remember it, it was like a lot of testosterone, you know what I mean? Wahlberg and Matt and Leo and all these guys there. And I didn't have any scenes with Jack, but um, I remember Marty was in really good spirits. I think he was excited to make that movie. Uh -huh. Very excited. Is he in complete control of the set? Like, is he very clear on what he's doing or is he finding it as he's going? 
shot to shot. Well, I would imagine other people who have a more profound history with him, uh, it's different. Right. I'm sure that he and Bob have a different, you know, thing, and, and Pesci, and I'm sure, and when Leo now, because Leo is his, right. uh, you know, muse now. But I think that um, when you're working with him and the guys that know what they want, Mike Nichols, I had that small part in Working Girl, you just stand there and just, you know, say, sir, yes, sir, you know, because they know. Right. But when you're with other guys who sit there and go, what do you think of how the scene should go? Uh, that's when you're in trouble. Well, you have to develop that muscle to think about that and to have some answer to that eventually. But what do you say, say to that? Because that makes me nervous. Well, what well, do you think how is, the scene should go on the, the set? The problem is that when you're in a scene with other people, you're being asked to give a, an opinion. And then if the director isn't going to take control, they're trying to get you to appeal to the other actor and sell them on your idea. If you're working with another actor who doesn't want that responsibility to say, and you're sitting there going, well, I thought I'd walk in, but I wouldn't sit down because I want to feel there's a certain tension, then that tension gets relieved when you say blah, 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 then I say, you know, whatever your thing is, and you're talking about the scene, you got to sell the director and the other. I like when the director walks in and goes, Rob Reiner. Come in, sit down, turn, sit, uh, you know, get the bottle of water, say, Charlie, he's got it all worked mm -hmm. out. And he just says to you, and you say, great, tell me what movie you want me to make. Right. Because I'm not going to cut the movie. I'm not making the movie. Right. You know, in the theater, you can rehearse, and you're working with, if it's a revival, you're working with material that, that works well. And in the theater, you can have more, uh, I mean, once you open, especially, and the director is gone, you can have a little bit more nuance of whatever. But in movies, the rule to remember is you're not making the movie. He's or she, they're making the movie, right. the director. And you need to just say, what can I give you? Right. Because if I don't give you what you need and you go into the cutting room, you know, then everybody's miserable. I agree. You worked with so many people. I want to play a game of what makes them great. Okay. I'm going to name different actors and I want you to say what makes them great. Blue Jasmine is really one of my favorite films and a ridiculous performance, ridiculous character, the writing and the performance from Blue Jasmine, Kate Blanchett. What makes Kate Blanchett great? She's indefatigable. She just has energy to spare. She's got no self-pity. She's not, I mean, there are men and women I work with who, not many, I don't want to say not many, who are very indulgent and it's all like my hair and they're in the makeup trailer for a long time and they get on the set and they touch them up again and everything is like like we're posing for a still camera, like for photography. And Kate is somebody who was like, fuck that. She went out in the hallway and drank like two espressos and she'd come back in the room and we had to do this fight scene. And she's just really, really tough and she's really, really blazingly talented, but she really, really just had bottomless energy. I love she that. could do take after take after take, and you know, I thought she was going to clock me right in the face one scene, and I was like, "Go right ahead, I don't give a shit. This is amazing watching you do this." So, I love that. Yeah, damn, I love that so much. Powerful. Ed Harris, what makes him great? Well, I think Ed is someone who has the great blessing of the great movie stars where he has the facial symmetry. Ed's face, the mask of his face, pulls you in. He's so compelling looking. Those big watery blue eyes of his and that real cowboy, you know, tough, square-jawed thing. And he can dial up 
uh, I don't want to say menace, but an aggression. And he can dial it down and be very sweet as well. So we can do, I always call this, my phrase is the sweet and sour. He can do the sweet and sour. And a lot of it has to do, for most movie stars that I can recall, the ones that are the most memorable, the people who you can see into their eyes. They used to say that if you were working with an actor who you couldn't see into their eyes, they'd play a villain. Mm. And the hero always had to be someone you could read them mm. and, and look into their soul. And Ed just has that amazing face of his, you know what I mean? And always has. And I've always been jealous of him because he's just got this enigmatic face all the time. I love that. Meryl Streep, who I'm sure you were a fan of before you started working as a film actor, you got to work with her, play with her. What makes, I mean, if you could even get into what That's makes... That's tough because there's so many things to say. But from my experience, I would say that with her, she doesn't let anything throw her. She doesn't get upset about anything. She doesn't allow any thing, this is just my opinion, to blow her sails off the course that she's on. If the scene isn't going the way the director wants or the, you know, whatever is happening in the scene or off the set or what have you, she comes on the set and she is gracious and she is wise and she's generous. I mean, she's all the things you'd want a legendary actor or actress to be toward you if you weren't really at their level and you were intimidated. Because when I did the movie with her, the director, Nancy Meyer, said to me, she's nine years older than you. And the men in the movie business have no problem dating and dialing down the ages of their leading ladies some 20, 25 years. It's ridiculous. She said, the men do that. Uh, why doesn't, uh, it's complicated as the movie. And she said, how do you feel about that? I said, listen, I said, my character doesn't want to have sex with his wife, his ex-wife. He's still in love with his ex-wife. There's a big difference. And Meryl is a very easy person to fall in love with. So when we did the movie, it didn't make any difference to me about age and whatever. And Meryl is a very easy person to fall in love with. Yeah, she's amazing. Great person. What I love this film, smaller film, Miami Blues. Yeah. The Jennifer. great Jennifer Jason Lee. Yeah. What makes her great? Uh, fearless. And no self-consciousness. And, uh, you know, she was. there were many things that I liked about her. And, she, and the subtlety. I mean, she, was a ma she is a master of subtlety and did all these little small things and with facially and what have you. But she was fearless. Like one time we're doing a scene and I have to have sex with her or just you see the early uh, blushes of that. And I'll never forget she turned to me. I didn't know her. And she goes, now you can do anything you want to me in the scene. And when they say cut, you have to stop. But like whatever impulse you have to do, as long as you don't hurt me, she goes, whatever impulse you have to do something, she goes, you can do it in the scene. But when they say cut, you stop. She's like, you understand? And I'm like, and I'm like, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand. And uh, that's an interesting. She was very, very. I don't want to just say professional. She's very wise. I agree. She's a woman that showed up on the set of a film. She was very young. And, you know, it's like, what made Brando Brando? Brando figured it out while he still had the sheen of his youth and his beauty. They handed him a Rubik's Cube that meant the highest level of virtuosic film acting. And he went, zit, 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 zit. And he went, you mean like this? And everybody was like, oh, my God. 
And he figured it out so young that where were the challenges for him later on, which is why he became so petulant. Yeah. And Jennifer was kind of the same way. Kristen Stewart. Kristen Stewart. I mean, I turned to her when we did uh, Still Alice, and I made a fool of myself, and I said to her, we're doing a scene, and I go, you remind me of Marlon Brando. She looks at me like, what? And I go, I said, I have no idea what you're going to do, take to take to take. And the variety wasn't that wide-ranging, but she would do little things and little things. And I, I think that Kristen Stewart is a great actress as well. I, I do too. Are you a take-to-take person um, in terms of try this, try that, try this, try that? Or are you like, this is the sort of parameter. I mean, there's a little tries, but like, are you like, I want to do one loud, I want to do one not loud, I want to do one soft, I want to do one angry, not... Uh, where do you, how do you it, approach I things? I think what it comes down to for me is that when I see the movie... And if the director agrees with me, there's a music to it. There's a rhythm. If the scene says, Jack drives up in a car, gets out of the car, goes into the bank. Let's just shoot the fucking shot twice. Get out of the car, go into the bank. And let's move on because we can't love every scene. And then when you're in the scenes with people that you are uh, more, you know, they're a little bit more intense and more layered. I like to, I mean, I have a silly rule especially if I work with younger actors, where I say, let's do it slow, medium, and fast in terms of the pace. Because mm -hmm. there are scenes I've seen, I can't quantify how many, but there are scenes I've seen in films that I've done where they cut the scene because you can't speed up the energy of the scene in editing. Interesting. If people are doing the scene and they're kind of like, you know, a lot of young actors do this. Ready? So you and I do a scene and they go, what time is it? It's uh, it's five to eleven. Did you say five to eleven? No, now it's four to eleven. <laughs> I know what you mean. And you want to go? You got to energize the scene, right? Because you know what's going to happen? They're going to cut the scene, right? If it sits there, so I always say to people, let's pace it up. That's smart. Pace it up. Pace it up. Pace it up. That's that way smart. We'll have a better chance of being in the movie. I got you. That's, that's my opinion. That's smart. That's smart. You didn't get to work with him in Glengarry. What makes Al Pacino great? You've spoken about him. You've done impressions of him. You're a fan of his. Passion. Passion. He says, even to this day. Even to this day. We did a thing for the studio. The Actors Studio, which their 75th year, their anniversary, last year. And now the celebration and the programming to celebrate the studio's 75th anniversary overlaps this year. Uh, this past fall into next spring. This spring. And uh, they had they showed Dog Day Afternoon at some famous movie theater that I forgot. It's up in Harlem or way uptown. It's like up on 135th Street. And this theater is gigantic. It like seats like, I don't know what it was, like 2,000 people. Wow. 2,200 people. It's like a big music hall or whatever. I don't know the name of it. But I think it's a, it's a, it's a movie theater because they're screening the film. They showed Dog Day. The place is packed. Now, many people bought... VIP tickets and for, to benefit the studio to go to a little party afterward, in, you know, backstage. And uh, then, but the bulk of the people there, or the overwhelming majority of people there, are there to watch the movie. I mean, they fill a theater it, way uptown in New York in the dead of winter, where it was pretty cold, and show Dog Day Afternoon. And then I interview Al afterward on stage. We come out, we do a little Q and A. And I mean, you know, people are like pissing their pants. You know, they just love him. Al is somebody who, I mean, I've said this before, and I feel bad to repeat this, but it's the only thing I can think of. And that is, I said, other actors, 
I said this at the Lincoln Center tribute to Al. I said, other actors, when the movie's over, you're done. They've made you laugh. They've scared you. They've thrilled you. They've terrified you. They've made you fall in love. They've done all these things, and they're very funny, or they're very charming, or they're very sexy, what have you. But when the movie's over, you're done with them. You're ready to get out of the theater. I said, with Al, you're never done. When the movie ends, you want to go, no, 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 no. You know, you want more. There's a humanity to Al. Uh, there's a sensuality to Al. I mean, Al has everything. And he still loves, he, he got up there and he was talking to the audience and he would make these comments and he, you could just tell he still loves acting. Loves it. Loves it. Loves it. What, what did you think rewatching Dog Day? How sad it was that Cazal died. Oh, Cazal was great. I mean, Cazal was so great. He was so great. You know, uh, Deer Hunter, you know. Deer Hunter is a movie that's really tough to watch. It that's a tough a movie. movie. It's a tough to watch. But the people who, like Bob, you know. This you is this. You look at Bob and you're like, you know. I was going to pivot to Bob. Right. You got to interview Bob on your NBC show. I did that ABC show. ABC yeah. show. Right. You love Bob like I love Bob. You got to work with Bob as a director. Just, you were going to, I interrupted you, like Bob. Talk well, to me no, about but, Bob. But, but, Break but, but, down Bob De Niro as an actor. It's, it's and, and when you interviewed him, were you able to get, because I got to be honest, Alec, when you got to interview him, I was jealous because I was right. like, I want to interview him. But I've yet to see someone get, and you were trying. You were, I've yet to see he him. He doesn't like to talk about him. You know, I, like I get him on the phone and I go, he goes, uh, you want me to do this uh, show of yours? Okay. And he said, the, the people told me it's an hour. It's an hour. What are we going to talk about for an hour? And I like kind of froze, and I said, well, I thought we would start with your movie career. Maybe that would take us through an hour. He was like, you're very funny, Alec. You're very funny. And he comes, and uh, what I think I said to him that I really meant, and he was very kind about this and accepted this, was I said, do you realize how much you mean to other people? I said, people come to acting as a fan of other people's acting. When you love acting, I don't know one person, I don't know one person who came into this business in film and TV, and of course, the array can be anything. It could be the Dick Van Dyke show, it could be Raging Bull. You don't give a shit. It can be Friends, it can be uh, Superman. People come into the business and they spend significant parts of their life appreciating other people and watching other people and having borderline obsessions with other people. How many times have I watched Raging Bull? How many times have I watched The Godfather? How many times have I watched Psycho? You know, whatever. And you just can't get over. You watch the acting at the highest level and you're sitting there going, oh, I hope one day I have even an opportunity not that I'm going to do it, but I even have a chance to do something even close to that. And I said to Bob in the talk show, I said, do you realize what you mean to other people, what you've, they've seen you and watched you in all these films, do the greatest acting, you know, among the top 25, 30, 50 men or whatever. And then women are in a different category as well. And he kind of, he was like, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. But I really meant it, you know. It's like, ow. Al, Nicholson, Dustin, uh, I mean, I could go on and on, Keitel, 
Newman, Beatty, Redford of that generation. I know I'm leaving out some Robert people. Duvall just turned 92. Du Duvall. Gene Hackman's people, alive. Gene Hackman. Duvall, we always say uh, the greatest performance in a movie is when he played Boo Bradley because he breaks your heart. He doesn't have one line. He doesn't say one line. Not one. And there's the same guy who pulses. I mean, Duvall is kind of amazing. Who pulses this sensitivity and this suffering and plays that character so beautifully. One of his first film roles. And that's the guy on the beach going, you know playing Kilgore in Apocalypse. I mean, that range of what I call disposition. Is the character powerful in the world? Is the character strong in the world? Look at Orson Welles and Citizen Kane, how commanding and how facile he is, and how amazingly sharp he is and, and seamless. And then you see someone play a part like um, Duval. In, I'm always looking for people who... They play characters where that character is strong and confident and fearless, and then someone who's struggling and in a lot of pain. And can you do both those things? Yeah. Yeah. And he he seemed, because I was really thinking about his performances the other day when I saw he turned 92. I mean, that character in, in Apocalypse Now, it could have been a joke. You know, uh, his character in The Great Santini, The Apostle, which he acted and directed in, which is insane. Yeah. You never saw him acting. And these are characters. It's like he's an actor. You just didn't see acting. It's almost one of those people who I imagine like people go, oh, you're not acting when you're acting, which is a compliment also and a disrespect because you don't understand the craftsmanship because it's seamless with Robert Duvall. I just love him so much and such a appreciative that he's alive. You know what I mean? Even I don't know if he's making films anymore. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis. You know, I mean, I mean, he to me is somebody who it's like, I mean, I'm joking when I say this, but I always felt like Spielberg and Tony Kushner and Daniel Day-Lewis get together to do Lincoln. And whatever source material there was, still photographs, written accounts of how Lincoln behaved, audio recordings, I think that maybe there were some. I don't think there was any film footage of him. And I, I see... Daniel Day-Lewis has somebody who says, okay, I'm going to survey all of this material, but in the end, I'm going to come up with a character, and that's Lincoln. Right. And for all eternity in people's minds, that will be Lincoln. Right. I'm going to create the Lincoln that's going to be the Lincoln right. from now on, as opposed to um, Raymond Massey, who did it early on yes. years ago. And uh, nothing wrong with his performance, but I think that you see guys who, just by the sheer force of their talent, you know. I am Rappaport Podcast. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the Draft King's YouTube channel. It's called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and culture surrounding the league. John Wall, baby. Needs no introduction. Every week, the five-time NBA All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA and what's going on now in the league. CJ will bring his A-list comedian buddies to keep it light and fire off some hoop takes. Plus, John Wall will be inviting current and former NBA players, friends, and teammates to join the show to give their unfiltered accounts 
of what's really going on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to podcasts. There's a new way to bet on things outside of sports with Kalshi. Maybe you thought uh, on the future of TikTok, will Congress ban it? Or won't they? Will Taylor Swift's album win album of the year? Will Biden's approval rating go up? Will it go down? Or inflation? You can trade futures on all of that and make money if you're correct. You're smart. You know things. Bet on it. $20 bonus if you go to Kalshi.com slash stereo. Spelled K-A-L-S-H-I and deposit $50. Kalshi.com slash stereo. Stereo, get in the game. There is no guarantee of performance. An investor could lose their entire investment. Investment fees, iHeartMedia does not recommend any investments. See further disclosures at Kalshi.com. This is Colin Coward from The Herd with Colin Cowherd. Angie's list is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. They're here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big, small, indoor, outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled pros to get the job done well. Listen, I've got a couple of things in a bathroom in my house. Gotta get it fixed. I don't have time, and I'm not good at it. Angie is. With just a few taps on the app, you can have Angie tackle your home service project start to finish. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it easy to research, compare, and hire pros to ensure a job done well. With 29 years of experience combined with new digital tools to simplify the process, Angie makes completing home projects really easy. It's your one-stop shop. Angie can help you find the best price for your project by comparing quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. They get the difficulties that can come with home projects. They get it. Why not make it as simple as possible? Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com or download the app today. What actors do you remember throughout the year? And I mean, I just named a few. I mean, you've worked with, there should be, you know, they do six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but you're at a point where it could be six degrees of Alec Baldwin of people that you've worked with. What actors do you remember throughout the years? It could be recent. It could be when you were younger, where you're in a scene and you're like, they're so good. Where just for a moment during a take or a rehearsal or a close-up where you go, they kind of take you out of it and you're watching Well, I was going to do a movie and we went and did a reading of the script at a hotel in L.A. And uh, De Niro was going to do the movie and he dropped out because he thought he wasn't right for the part because the guy was kind of very waspy. I did this movie, The Edge, with Tony Hopkins, which was originally called Bookworm. And it was much more Baroque and much more psychological. They turned it into like an action film, you know, an adventure film with the bear and everything. But... When they called me, I was on vacation with my ex-wife, and they called me and they said, Tony Hopkins is going to do the movie. I started to cry. And I thought, oh, my God. And I showed up there to go to work. And the movie, you know, had a lot of things wrong with it, and I was not wild about how it turned out. But I got to do this movie with Tony Hopkins, and I was so... That was the greatest experience I've ever had shooting a movie, because it was a lead role, you know, if I do Bob's, if I do... Um, the Good Shepherd. If I do Good Shepherd with Bob, 
you know, that was just in and out in a couple of weeks, and you know, Marty and people like that, Nichols, smaller roles. But when you play a lead role with somebody who you really like, Harold Becker, who did Sea of Love, and uh, uh, he did other great films, Taps. We did this movie, Malice, which was this very tepid kind of thriller with me, Bill Pullman, and Nicole Kidman. But I learned a lot from Harold. He was great. He was really very actor-friendly. So, But I, I must say that uh, the time we spent up in Canada shooting The Edge with Tony, that was probably the greatest experience I've ever had. That's awesome. When you did Glengarry Glen Ross, you showed up one day? Two days we shot, yeah. We rehearsed, and then we came back, and I shot it over the course of two days. It might have been two and a half, I don't remember, but I know it was two days to cover everybody. You know, the film's been quoted. It's sort of been, it's an iconic film, iconic scene, the lines, the actors. When you look back at that time, what do you remember? What do you take away from that experience? And the way you approached that scene, would you approach it differently now? Not probably. in terms of why. <laughs> yeah, probably. It, maybe you tone it down and maybe you, just a click meaning. He said to me, Foley, he said, this is like the scene in, because I was very uncomfortable doing this scene with these guys. Why? I, well, I admired all of them, and I had to be so abusive to them. <laughs> and I called up Mamet on the phone, and I said, you won the Pulitzer Prize for the play. Why do you feel the need to amend the play? I said, you won. It's the, the big prize. He said, none of these men have a criminal nature, and they're about to commit a crime. And I need someone to come in there and ratchet everything a little tighter for them, make everything more taut and difficult for them so that they will commit. So you come in and your scene is going to be to incite them to commit a crime. And then I said, oh, God, I've, you know, when it came time to shoot the scene, Foley said, it's like that scene in Patton when he slaps the guy in the tent who got shell shock. And he says, you call yourself a soldier. And Foley said to me, we're going to do, call this the, you call yourself a salesman scene. He's like, you're coming down here. It's for their own good. You're not doing this to be mean. This is for their own good. They need this or they're going to be dead. We're in battle here. It's a war. You go out that door, you got to sell. And he goes, and I need you to crack all of them right across the face as hard as you can and get them to snap the fuck out of it. And I literally remember electricity going through my body because I needed someone to explain to me I call it authorization. What authorizes me to do the scene that way? And when he told me that, I was like, okay, I'm ready. And I got up and we go. And uh, it was not easy because, I mean, I, you have to say all these horrible things to them. But the thing I remember most has nothing to do with that. The thing I remember most was that was one of the earlier, I'd done a few, but not many, of the great monastic cinematographers in the business. One of the greatest joys of making films is to work with great cinematographers. I work with Ballhouse, with uh, Nichols. I worked with Bob Richardson. I worked with Don McAlpine on The Edge. And I worked with Juan Ruiz Anchia, who photographed uh, Glenn Gary. And he's just unbelievable. Explain to non-actors why it's great to work with a great cinematographer as an actor. Well, you watch Glenn Gary, and it's like a painting, you know, with all the black and white kind of... It's a film that's in color, and sometimes you feel like you're being seduced into it being black and white. John Toll, one of the... I think there's only two men. Toll is one. I think there's one more I can't remember, who won the Oscar for cinematography in back-to-back -back years. 
I think he won it for Braveheart, and then he won, ran it for Legends of the Fall, mm -hmm. I believe. He won it for one of those movies. Uh, I, I know he won for Braveheart. I believe it was Braveheart. No, Braveheart he did, and then the year before that, he, he did Legends of the Fall. I oh, think, right. No, not River Runs Through It. It's either River Runs Through It or Legends of the Fall. So he won the Oscar two years in a row. And you're with this guy, and you're like, and when you, when you shoot, because this is a movie. Yeah. We're making a movie. Yeah. Someone's going to put the camera on you and do it. And this guy who shot Glengarry, he just was like, all the great DPs, they never transmit any tension. They like walk up to you and they go, could I ask you a question? Could you please just uh, lean? When he talk, uh, you lean this way, just a little bit. And I go there and we line up and I go, you mean like this? He's like, it's perfecto. It's so good. And you're like, I'm here to put this on film. Right. So when you have guys that are really, and women, uh, who are really, really uh, strong cinematographers, God, you feel so confident. It's I agree. Gonna look, it's going to look good, you know? And so being on the set, cursing at Jack Lemmon, who must have been a fucking a sweet guy. Yeah. You're cursing at Ed Harris. You're cursing at Alan Arkin. Oh, horrible. Are you having fun? Are no, they having fun? No, 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 no. You know, you play these characters that are these tough characters. I said when I did Streetcar on Broadway, I get into like the sixth week of it. I want to go, I want to say to Blanche, why don't we sit down and have a drink, Blanche, and work everything out? I mean, you're like, you get tired of being, uh, you know, at that level. And when I do movies where you have to uh, kind of lose it uh, or you're cruel in some way, it's never fun. Right. Never fun. You know, what's fun is when you do, like when we did 30 Rock, that was fun because those people were so creative and Tina's so unique and her talent as a writer and Robert Carlock and their whole stable of writers that I'd come to work and they were like, they'd hand us the script in the morning. And we'd be in makeup. And we were going to do the read-through for the network that afternoon. They would pipe us to Burbank from a room. We'd go into a conference room. And so we'd take lunch on a Wednesday and do the read-through. And they'd hand me the script in the morning, and I'd say, I'd walk up to Robert Carlock, and I'd say, you want me to play this Patty Duke thing with myself? And the other side of it is, I'm a gay Mexican soap opera star? And Robert Carlock would always like say, it's a big swing. I know it's a big swing, but we have faith in you. We believe in you. He was always like, you know, giving me the business. But that was fun because they were so fucking funny. Did the speed of it throw you off at first? The speed of television? No, no, they knew. Well, the speed of shooting? Yes. Uh, it was a lot of work. I mean, I'm not complaining. And we were uh, compensated, but it's like... Uh, we had a line, or I had a line with them, which was, you give the scene the stick to the finish line. Like in horse racing, you just, uh -huh. you just, you don't pause. Don't, you got to just go, let the audience, our audience will keep up with us. And I thought it was genuinely funny as opposed to so many films and TV shows I see now that are more cute than funny. I agree. Yeah. Um, when I was talking to you on the phone, you gave me a very big compliment. I don't even know if you are, uh, remember it, but I, it stuck with me. You said, you called me the Lawrence Olivier of fuck. And I consider you one of the great cursors in cinematic history, along with the great Dennis Farina, the late great Dennis Farina. Farina. Of course, uh, uh, Bob De Niro, uh, Frank Vincent, um, um, Joe Pesci, Alec Baldwin, the great Al Pacino. So I wanted to uh, have a, a fuck off with you. Okay. Uh, and I, I wrote some lines down and I'll say them and then I wanted <laughs> you to say them as well. And we could go back and forth a little, almost like an actor, um, you know, warm up uh, routine yeah. here. And so some I, Meisner. Yeah, some Meisner stuff. 
Fuck you, Michael Rappaport. 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 You motherfucker, you. 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 <laughs> you motherfucker, you. You are a cock sucker. You are a cock sucker. Mm. You're a cock sucker. You're a cock sucker. You're a cock sucker. You're a cock sucker? <laughs> Did we get it? Oh, I'm in heaven. I'm, I'm almost done. Now, I want to ask you a question. I want to interview you for a second, which is my nature. So in your career now, do you find that the types of work you don't want to do? Like, I would imagine a TV series could be in your hand tomorrow. You don't want to commit to a series and be grinding that out for five or six years? No, I would love to find the, a, right. a good one. It's crazy now because a television series that is good and that lasts, and there's such incredible, ridiculous, great stuff on TV, you kind of want to be a part of the great ones. Yeah. I mean, there's so much good stuff on television. What are you watching on television? What do you get to watch besides football? Probably a lot of SpongeBob, Teletubbies, and right. all this. Yeah, Sunny Bunnies, um, Moana, uh, Frozen. We watch Frozen like over and over. Yeah. Oh my kids, my well, Finding Nemo. Well, they all go down. You know what I mean? So now there's two. The toddlers. They were in that phrase. And my daughter Luthia, she can't say Olaf. She says Owaf. And when she sees me. She's the most wonderful. She kisses me. She hugs me. Then she goes, oh, waff, oh, waff, oh, waff, oh, waff. Like she wants to go watch Frozen. So um, I would say um, what I've watched, I watched the one with Cannavale and Naomi Watts. Uh, 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 oh, um, yes. something. Yes. The Watcher. Yes, that was good. I watched that. I devoured The Crown. I love it too. Because I'm obsessed with production value. Yes. Like there's things you're going to see there's sets and photography and design, and there's a reality there and going into the world of those people that you're just never going to see anywhere else. I agree. And then I, um, uh, I'm i trying to think of what else. Did you uh, watch White Lotus season two? No, no. You got to watch it. Why? It's fucking ridiculously good. The writing's ridiculously Is it good. really? You're going to be like, oh, shit. I always say to myself, I'm not quite sure how interested am I am I am in shows about like, romantic and sexual intrigue. It, it, it's not that. It's It's ridiculous. not dynasty. No. Okay. It's, you're going to be like, oh shit. And it's, this second That's season, good. excellent. That's amazing to hear you say that. Excellent. It, it's so good. You're like, this is fucking, you're going to- I gonna watched all of Ozark. Great. I watched all of Ozark. And I just got a little freaked out because whenever they wrote themselves into a corner, they started shooting people. So that was like Westworld. I went all the way with Westworld, even though I was a little bit uh, disappointed in how that, I wanted something more relatable to happen. But I will tell you, and maybe I have a feeling maybe you feel the same way. One of my favorite shows, I always say this to people all the time, and I'm amazed that people didn't catch this, was The Night Of, the Tarantino, uh, no, Tuturo. Tuturo, John Tuturo. That Tuturo did. Played the Riz lawyer. Ahmed. Yeah. 
and the kid gets busted, and they only did the one season. And Richard Price and Zalian did the writing. Excellent. And that, I think Zalian did the directing. That show was so good. That was when the Gandolfini shot the pilot, then he died. Right. So they had to go back and recast and, and reshoot it. But, um, oh my God, I love that. I love that show. Really my, good. Michael, Michael K. Williams. Yes. Who I worked with in this movie, The Public, with uh, Emilio. Now, that's a director I love, was Emilio. I worship Emilio, Emilio Estevez. He's a good director, right? He's a great director. And he's, a, he's the loveliest guy on the face of the earth. And we did this movie, The Public, and Michael K. Williams was in it. And when I saw him and his energy, I completely blanked. And then I walked up to him like day four and I go, you're the guy from the night of. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, I, I love that show. The yeah. night of. People should watch that really show good. on HBO. You know what else is excellent? And even though you're happily married, I'm happily married too. Fleischman's in trouble on FX with what Jesse is, Eisenberg and Claire Danes. It's based on a book and it's really about these two people going through their divorce and a great portrayal also like Blue Jasmine of a woman going through a mental breakdown. Fucking excellent. Now why would my marriage be uh, uh, soiled if I was No, this? your marriage wouldn't be soiled. Oh. But for me... I had went through a divorce with my kids and it was, that show really, it captures it in a, I mean, in a real way. The movie with uh, Adam Driver and Scarlett. Marriage Story. Marriage Story. That, I went from the screening was at the Hamptons Film Festival and I was out there and I walked out into the hallway and Noah was there and I had tears in my eyes and I said, this is like you had a camera hidden on me in my during my divorce. You know, you're remarried now? Yes. So you were married once? Yeah, twice. Twice before. No, once before. Once before. So once for two. Once before, and now I'm married the second time. And I said to Noah Bombeck, I said, I can't believe this is so close to the bone to me. It was, it was painful. Yeah, so, I agree. Great movie. Great I agree. Movie. Yeah. Excellent movie. Yeah. Excellent, ridiculous movie. Fleischman's in Trouble, which is, it's all, all right. New York. All right, I'll check it out. Oh, it's fucking... I'll check that out in White Lotus. You're Only because gonna... you said so. I... Everybody else tells me White Lotus. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't want to see a bunch of people no. banging each other no, at no, some no, resort no, no, or whatever. No, no. You will love... It's you're not gonna... that. You're going to go, I want to be on White Lotus season three. I guarantee you. The writers are fucking... I don't it, need that. It's seven episodes, and each one, you're just like... I mean, there's times where I put me and my wife are like, God damn, this is ridiculous. See, it's just that good. And the undertones... Everybody says that. It's great. It's not Dynasty. It's not Knots Landing. It's relationships and dysfunction and what's being said and what's really not being said. Imperioli's on the show now. F. Murray Abraham, uh, Aubrey Plaza, some people I've never seen. But excellent. It's really Ma good. I love Michael. Yeah, he's great. He's it. Alec Baldwin. I could go on and on and on and on and ask questions. My, my final question. What is your Trump predictions? It's 2023. Well, I don't what do you think is going to happen? Well, I do believe that there's a chance, I don't feel strongly about this, that this conservative cabal that withheld the vote for uh, McCarthy to be the speaker, they're going to continue to uh, try to tip over the canoe uh, for that group. The Republicans are in the majority, and I'm not quite sure they're going to hold on to the majority. I think that there is going to be more and more the press 
is willing to, to call it. Like, for example, every time there was a moment when things changed and you would hear on the media, the press would say, Trump that said the election was stolen, which has been disproven. They, they would label it a lie. The news media would come right out and say that's a lie. And I wonder if they've become more aggressive in terms of citing that w with everybody. So I think that the Republicans are very fractured. And that may hurt them in 2024 for holding on to the House. And number two, I can't imagine that anybody's going to be the nominee other than DeSantis. He seems to be positioned himself uh, very adroitly for that. I agree, but I go back and forth. I go back and forth on Trump. I mean, Trump is cooked. He's cooked. He's cooked. And all the stuff that's come out now, you know, when you tell Americans that, I mean, like I, for example, believe you should have a base of what income taxes are, a minimum tax. So let's say Michael Rappaport makes $10 million. Oh, that would be great. Well, when, let's say you're in a 40% bracket, so you owe $4 million to the IRS. And what we say is we don't want to disincentivize philanthropy. So we say you can deduct $2 million, but you must pay no less than 20% of your income. No amount of write-offs, nothing. Your baseline, like alternative minimum tax, similar is you must pay 20%. Everybody in a certain category, then we knock those numbers down for people who make less money. But it's like this idea that Trump paid no taxes. You want to go, you know, you got to pay 20% of your income minimum to do that. And I think that when people realize that uh, Trump said his taxes were withheld and you see that he paid no taxes at all, I think some of his base is going to be, they're going to find that offensive. I hope they do. Because he, Trump he, is cooked. He's finished. He's finished. Yeah. I, I mean, there's a people want to win the White House, and they know they're never going to win with Trump. And they know that DeSantis, they've got a good shot. Right. All right. Alec Baldwin, I am Rapport Stereo Podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. This is awesome. Good to see you. There's a new way to bet on things outside of sports with Kalshi. Maybe you thought uh, on the future of TikTok. Will Congress ban it? Or won't they? Will Taylor Swift's album win album of the year? Will Biden's approval rating go up? Will it go down? Or inflation? You can trade futures on all of that and make money if you're correct. You're smart. You know things. Bet on it. $20 bonus if you go to Kalshi.com slash stereo. Spelled K-A-L. S-H-I and deposit $50. Kalshi.com slash stereo. Get in the game. There is no guarantee of performance. An investor could lose their entire investment. Investment fees. iHeartMedia does not recommend any investments. See further disclosures at Kalshi.com. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.